You had an option, sir. You could have said, I am not going to do it. This is wrong for Canada. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. David, how are you doing? Pretty good, Neil. And we are back for another history podcast. David, have you got a story to tell us? I might have a story to tell you, Neil. All right, then. I will ask the question that triggers the story. David, oh brother, when art thou? It's May 12th, 1862, just after nightfall. And at Fort Lee, Coles Island in South Carolina, just off Charleston, South Carolina, the soldiers manning the fort watch as a small Confederate vessel, the CSS Planter, sails out to sea as it is done dozens of times before, its captain clearly visible standing on deck with his trademark straw hat jauntily tilted to one side, when suddenly, instead of turning as it should to go down the, go down the coastline, the planter picks up steam and heads out at full speed towards the waiting Union Navy, pulling down the Confederate flag and putting up in its place a giant white banner of surrender. All right, David. So from what you're telling us, this is the American Civil War. The Confederates are the South. The Union is the North. Of course, a war of brother against brother in the United States. And we're in South Carolina, David, where the CSS planter has put up the white flag of surrender. David, we just had Star Wars Day, May the 4th. In the words of General Akbar. Is this a trap? No, no, it is not. The CSS planter, to the absolute shock of the watching soldiers from the battlements of this fort outside of Charleston, is, in point of fact, defecting to join the Union Navy. That would be quite shocking for the Confederate soldiers, I'm sure, to see one of their own going over to the other side Who's this commander with his straw hat jauntily atop his head, David? Well, the captain of the CSS planter should be Captain Relia. But in this particular case, even though he was standing clearly on the deck in a captain's uniform with the trademark straw hat tilted jauntily to one side in such a way as to block the fort from actually seeing his face as the shocked soldiers are slowly beginning to realize that was not Captain Relia at all. Oh, David, the plot thickens here. So we have a missing captain and this new mysterious stranger who has taken the planter over to the Union side. So it's not a trap from the Confederates towards the Union Navy. But is there trickery involved in this story, David? Possibly a little bit. Let's go back to just before the Civil War broke out and take a moment to introduce you to Robert Smalls. Who is Robert Smalls, David? Robert Smalls was an African-American born in South Carolina, enslaved from birth as were the bulk of the African-Americans at the time, and he became a sailor over time. He remained enslaved, but he is master 
had him working, essentially. He was off on his own doing what he wanted so long as he paid a certain amount of money back to his owner every week. So he worked as a sailor, became a competent professional who understood everything necessary to operate a steamship because, in point of fact, he did all the time. But unlike his white counterparts with the same expertise, he was never allowed to be called a wheelman, which was the term for a steamship operator officer at the time. But even so, he was working, trying to save up money to buy his freedom, which he was nowhere close to actually making anything like enough money to make that in any way feasible. But working, he was married. And so at the outbreak of the Civil War, he was living in the Confederacy with very useful skills for the Confederate government as an experienced sailor. But at the same time, obviously, he couldn't be accepted and used by the Confederacy directly because he was enslaved and clearly hated them. So, David, this Robert Small seems like quite the accomplished man, even despite his position as a slave, and also perhaps the perfect person to pull off some naval trickery? Perhaps. But before we get there, we've got to move on. So the CSS Planter was a small harbor vessel, which had originally been a civilian ship, which Robert Smalls had been working on just as an ordinary steamship, the Planter. And when they took it over, the Confederate Navy obviously was able to supply some officers who could work it, but they had a manpower problem. They couldn't supply all of the crew for all of the small vessels that they needed working along the Confederate coast. So Robert Smalls and several other enslaved men ended up kept on the planter working as lower deck seamen, even though they'd had more responsible positions before the war, with a group of Confederate white Navy officers put in charge to actually run the ship. And for a full year, from 1861 to 1862, that's how things work. The planter was a small vessel. Its job was to mark paths in and out of the harbor for larger ones. It did its job competently with the Confederate Navy officers running things and the black crew making up the manpower for tasks that required more physical labor. Of course, David, the Confederacy was pro-slavery. They wanted to ensure that slavery remained in the United States. So these enlisted black men were being forced to work in the Navy fighting to keep them as slaves. Exactly. And for Robert Smalls in particular, that graded. He didn't want to be stuck enslaved in the Confederate Navy for the rest of his life. He wanted things to change. And that's when he started to make a plan. I can understand his point of view, David. I would not like to be in that situation either. So what sort of plan did he come up with? So the first step was to one by one sound out the other black crewmen on the planter and determine that they were willing to join with his plan that he was still developing and take a risk for freedom. And he ended up recruiting all but one of the planter's black crew as enthusiastically ready to try and become free if he could come up with a good plan. 
How many men did he have with him, David? There were seven black crewmen total, including Smalls. All right. So step one of the plan is coming together quite nicely. He's got some men on his side. Now he needs an actual plan to get the ship and hopefully get their freedom. So step two of the plan was to learn all of the codes to get out of Charleston Harbor without being fired on by the soldiers in the forts. And he did this pretty simply. He first memorized the scheduled changes when they changed the codes and made sure that he knew how many days the codes remained in force. And then, right before his plan, the day before, knowing that they wouldn't be changed, he watched each as the boat went out on an ordinary mission. He carefully watched the captain and memorized all of the signals so that he knew the signals he needed to get out. What sort of signals are these, David? Like flags or lights or something that would let the men in the fort know not to fire on the ship? They're light signals, and also in the daytime, there were hand signals, which is one of the reasons why he decided he was going to go out at night when he could be less visible to the people from the fort, said he'd only have to do one set of signals with a light. All right, seems like it was pretty easy to breach that little bit of Confederacy Navy security, but he still has to get control of the boat, David, so that he can sail out of the harbor and actually use these signals. Indeed, and that's where the most insidious part of his plan is. He waits for a party. Ah, this sounds like a clever little trick that he's got up his sleeve here, David. What did he do? So there are three Confederate Navy officers permanently assigned to the planter. Obviously, only two of them are allowed to leave at any one time so that somebody's always watching the ship who's trusted by the Confederate government. But Smalls has been working on trying to appear trustworthy to the officers he works with. And so he waits until there's a big party going on. And before they leave, he says, man, it's terrible that the third guy is going to get stuck on board all night with nothing happening when he could go out and visit the party. And everybody's like, it is terrible, but those are the rules. And he's like, well, you know, I could watch the ship. And he has a perfectly reasonable suggestion up his sleeve. One man can't operate the ship. There's no way it's going anywhere if only one man watches it. And one man can certainly watch it, make sure nobody comes on board to steal something or something. So why don't the black crew also get the night off? Everybody gets the night off other than Robert Smalls. That way, even if they don't trust him, it's perfectly safe. And the Confederate officers say, that sounds pretty reasonable. So all three of them pack up to go to the party which they attend, and all the black crew are off the boat before they leave. David, 107 years before the moon landing, this is the Michael Collins ploy that he's employing here. Michael Collins, of course, the astronaut who had to fly the space shuttle around the moon while Aldrin and Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. And so he's tricking these Confederate Navy officers by saying, you don't want to be the third guy left behind. Why don't all three of you go walk on the moon? So, of course, all three of them go off to the party, thinking that the boat is safe, because there's no way one guy could operate it, and Smalls is entirely on his own, which is where the second party comes into play. 
Because, of course, the other reason why no one's worried that Robert Smalls is going to try and steal the boat is that he's married. He's got a wife. So do most of the other guys who are working on the boat with him. They're not going to try and flee because that would mean leaving their families, their loved ones, behind in the hands of the Confederates, subject to all kinds of terrible vengeance. So the fact that there's been no leaks, there's no way you could tell a bunch of kids that we're going to run away today and not have somebody hear about it, mean that the Confederates are still pretty confident that this is safe. But Robert Smalls had an answer to that. He tells the wives and children of all of the sailors, including his own wife, that they're planning the Confederate officers are all going to leave tonight, we're going to be on our own, and we're going to throw a party on the boat. So everybody come on board the boat so that we can have a party. So, shortly after all of the black crew have left and the Confederate Navy officers have left, all of the crew return with their families. David, it seems like these Confederate officers didn't do a very good job of securing the ship. They may have missed that all of the black crew and their families could just come back to the ship and join Robert Smalls as soon as they left. So, now, Robert Smalls merely has to tell all of these women and children, that they're about to flee north on board this boat, something they had not known was going to happen until this very moment, and then convince them all to get below decks on a very small boat and remain very quiet, because if anybody realizes that there's a bunch of women and children on board what's supposed to be a Confederate Navy vessel, they're going to get caught and things are going to turn really bad. So, David, the CSS Planter, a Confederate ship, is now packed with all of these black women, children, and their husbands who were being forced to work for the Confederate Army. And under the direction of Robert Smalls, they are sailing out of the harbor directly towards the Union Navy. There's still a considerable amount of risk in this plan, David. There is. And that's where two of the things for the alleged second party, which he'd told his wife about, come into play. Because he'd asked his wife to bring two specific things for this party that didn't actually exist. One was a straw hat, just like the straw hat that Captain Relia always wore. And one was a white tablecloth. Had to be white. Very important. The straw hat is to cover his face by always making sure he's got it tilted towards the shoreline, there's no way that anybody can see that the man standing on deck where the captain should be isn't a white man. The white tablecloth, of course, is about to become a white flag to make sure that when they reach the patrolling Union Navy blockade vessels, they don't get sunk immediately as a Confederate Navy vessel. And so, David, as they approach the Union Navy, what is the reaction from the other side, seeing this boat coming towards them with the white tablecloth flying as a white flag? Well, mostly it's confusion. This is unexpected, but the planter is a very small vessel. It's not very threatening. It may officially be a naval vessel, but the big blockade ships are not intimidated. So boats are sent out from the blockade to go and interrogate the planter. And when they find out that it's a group of slaves defecting, they're obviously happy to be getting a free boat, basically. So 
in the Union Blockade Squadron, it's a good day. You know, they got a success with no effort on their own part. They welcome Robert Smalls aboard, congratulate him on his success, and announce that they're going to send him up north. They don't really have a plan for where he's going to go or anything, but, you know, they'll send him up to Admiral Parrott, who they assume will probably figure something out. And then Robert Smalls and his crew and the boat, which is not useful for blockade purposes, are all dispatched up to New York to meet with Admiral Parrott. Wow, David, a great success for the planter and its black crew who have successfully escaped to the Union Navy. Does all go well on their trip north to meet with Admiral Parrott? Yes, indeed. They meet with Admiral Parrott, and this is where things take a slightly more political turn. Parrott is a radical abolitionist in his politics who believes firmly that the Union should be treating the escaped slaves that they're receiving better than they actually are. And usually he can't do anything about it since ordinarily the Navy doesn't really get a lot of escaping slaves. But in this case, he can. So he announces that not only is he going to recommend that Robert Smalls be kept on board the planter, now to become the USS planter, to be used as a Union Navy vessel, but also that he and his crew should get paid prize money. They captured a ship, they should receive half the value of that ship as a reward from the Union government. How does this all go over, David, in the North? In the North, it's a sensation. The newspapers love it. The daring story of a slave outwitting the arrogant Confederates, stealing a ship, and then one of the unexpected outcomes of his interview with Admiral Parrott, they're talking, and he talks about how he had to memorize all of the defenses in Charleston Harbor so that he could show all the right signals. And Admiral Parrott asks him to show on a map where all of the defenses in Charleston Harbor are, and he points them all out, and the Admiral says, you missed one. We know that they've got a fort on Mule Island. And... Robert Smalls says, no, I haven't. They used to have a fort on Mule Island. They're running short on troops because the war's not going well. That fort's been abandoned. And that critical piece of information lets the U.S. Navy seize Mule Island and use it as a base for their blockading fleet for the rest of the war, which makes Smalls an even bigger hero in the Union when that gets announced. He didn't just escape from slavery. He escaped from slavery with critical military information. And so, David, on the other side, what's the fallout from this for the Confederacy? Well, when the story breaks in northern newspapers, southern newspapers also cover it with a slightly different spin, mostly focused on Captain Relia and his two fellow officers, and the fact that they should not have all gone on leave at the same time no matter how good a party they were going to. This actually leads to court-martials. They initially, the admiral commanding Charleston Harbor, had decided not to court-martial any of the officers because he felt that they were embarrassed enough having been tricked and didn't need a specific criminal punishment. But pressure from the newspapers gets too strong 
All three of them are court-martialed, initially found guilty, but then the Admiral quietly lets them go once the fur has died down a bit. Nonetheless, it remains an embarrassment in the South all the way up until they lose the entire war and have many more important things to be embarrassed about. And all, David, because of the bravery of Robert Smalls and the other men who joined him and contributed a small but significant piece to the Union victory in the American Civil War. And before we wrap up, just let me add one last little detail about the story of Robert Smalls. As it happens, he would go on to become the first South Carolina Republican ever elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Also, I think it goes without saying, the first African-American South Carolina representative to the U.S. Congress, which in turn makes him a trailblazing pioneer in more than one way. So he goes on to have even more impact, David, and specifically in American politics. Thanks for telling us this story. I always enjoy it, Neil. If you enjoyed it, please join us on social media at When Art Thou. We'd love to hear from you and you can follow us for more episodes and go take a look in our archives because there are plenty of other stories about navies, about slavery, about wartime. So you should be able to find something you like there. David, we always like to end with something fun. How about a quiz? I'd enjoy it, Neil. All right, today's quiz, David, is about the history of the United States Supreme Court. No particular reason that this was on my mind, but I thought we would dig into the history a little. Are you ready? All right, let's go. Who was the only person to serve as both President of the United States and Supreme Court Chief Justice? President of the United States and Supreme Court Chief Justice. Who? I can't think of anyone off the top of my head, which is embarrassing. You'd think that would be a fact I should know, but it's got to be, I would imagine, somebody, one of the presidents with a lot of legal expertise. I'm wondering if it was William Howard Taft. You are bang on, David. William Howard Taft, the only person to serve as both president of the United States and Supreme Court Chief Justice. We've all seen the video and the news pieces from the Supreme Court building in Washington, David. When was that built? The current Supreme Court building in Washington. I really don't know when it was built. I've seen it on the news. It's beautiful architecture. Looks very classical, so it's either very old or built by the Works Progress Administration of the 1930s, who really liked that kind of architecture. Since I don't have a good guess for when it might have been built, if it's an older building, I'm going to guess that it's from the end of the 1930s. Let's guess 1938. Well, David, you are right in the area. You got the right decade, so I will give you credit for that. It was built 1935, which surprised me later than I would have thought, built at the urging of the previously mentioned Chief Justice William Howard Taft. David, we know there are nine Supreme Court justices on the court right now, but that number isn't fixed by the Constitution. So what is the greatest number of justices that have ever sat on the Supreme Court at one time? The largest number of justices who ever sat on the Supreme Court at one time. It has to be an odd number to avoid deadlocks. And I honestly, again, 
don't know the answer to this question. So I'm going to guess 15. That's a good guess, David. That's actually the number that FDR proposed raising it to when he was trying to pass some of his legislation. But the actual number is 10. And I agree with you. You would think it would have to be an odd number, but they had 10 justices between 1863 and 1866. Next question for you, David. What percentage of Supreme Court justices had never been a judge prior to joining the bench? Percentage of Supreme Court justices didn't have judicial experience before joining the bench. It has to be fairly low, I would think. Certainly, most of the Supreme Court justices can think of at least sometime as a judge. Uh, But I don't think it's zero. There definitely have been some cases where Supreme Court justices are not required to have been judges. It's simply very common. I'll guess 10%. You're low, David. It's actually 36% of Supreme Court justices weren't judges before being appointed to the Supreme Court, including the current Justice Kagan. Final question for you, David. Which U.S. president is the only one to complete a full term in office without appointing a Supreme Court justice? I'm going to guess Herbert Hoover. It's a worthy guess, David. We were actually looking for Jimmy Carter. There were three presidents who did not have an opportunity to appoint a justice because their terms were shortened by their death. But Jimmy Carter, the only president to serve a full term without appointing a Supreme Court justice. That's our Supreme Court history quiz. Thanks for playing along, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. And thanks for listening.